Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning to those of you who are in the house, as well as those of you who are in Simpson Hall and who are joining us online this morning. When I was very young, my family had a lot of pets. Um, One of these pets was a dog named Bear, and I mean, he was huge. He was like part German shepherd, part woolly rhinoceros. Um, But he was also very, very mean, and he liked to run away a whole lot. So the neighbors didn't really like this dog at all um, because, you know, he would growl and he would kind of foam at the mouth and he would chase people. Uh, So because we didn't have a fence in our yard, we decided that it was probably a good idea that we chained this dog up. Uh, Everyone pretty much agreed that it was probably a good thing that we constrained this dog. Now, we also had another pet, and this pet uh, was a large, cuddly, black and white rabbit. And we named him Wapus, which is the Cree word for uh, rabbit. And he, Wapus was a, was, a, was a gentle rabbit. The kid, we, we as kids liked to play with Wapus a lot. But Wapus also had a very sinister side to him because he loved to taunt Bear. And Bear hated, absolutely hated Wapus. So whenever Wapus would come around in the yard, Bear would do everything he could to catch him. He would chase him. He would sprint at the top of his, you know, at top speed towards Wapus. He would, with every ounce of his strength, he would leap into the air at Wapus. But at the very last minute, his chain would catch him, yank him back, and he'd land back down on the ground again. I mean, it was actually quite humorous to watch. Sometimes we would get Wapus to run across the yard just to see it happen. It was, it was like an episode of the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. But you see, here's the thing is, Wapus was actually a very smart and sinister rabbit because he knew exactly how long that chain was. And so what he'd do is he'd scurry across the yard and he'd sit on the ground just outside the reach of Bear's chain. He'd sit there and he'd wiggle his nose at Bear and Bear would fret and he would growl and he'd foam at the mouth like a starving prisoner staring at a, a turkey dinner through an iron cage. So my family really agreed. Okay, this is a good idea that we keep Bear constrained. Because after all, what would happen if we ever let Bear off of his chain? Well, one day, somebody forgot to tie up Bear. And Wapoos walked across the yard to his old accustomed spot, and he sat down. And at the end of the day, Wapoos was no more. And that, friends, is a happy ending. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Today in the book of Romans, Paul begins with a question. And he's asking the question essentially this. What would happen if we just removed people from their constraints? Well, what would happen if we abolished the law? What would happen if we eliminated rules altogether? And see, this was actually a big question in the church in Rome. Uh, almost 2,000 years ago, because much of the church was made up of two groups of people. There were the Jewish Christians on the one hand, the keepers of the Torah, the keepers of the law, and there were the non-Jewish Christians who were the Gentiles. And the tension that existed between these two groups was centered around the role of the law in the life of believers. 
And a number of the Jewish Christians, just, they just automatically assumed, hey, everyone needs to continue to live under the law of Moses, right? Because we've been doing it for thousands of years. And this includes the Gentiles. So this includes uh, sacred days. This includes food, food laws. This also includes, well, circumcision. Ouch, right? So some even believe that you would have a better standing with God if you continued to live under the law of Moses. And of course, you know, if you've been with us in this series, you know that, that Paul essentially dismantled this assumption in the first few chapters of Romans. He showed that you know, both Jews and Gentiles, they're both equally culpable, they're equally lost, they're equally broken. And if you try and stand on the law, well, essentially you are standing on shaky ground before God. Because nobody can keep all the requirements of the law all of the time, right? And so the only way to have right standing with God, Paul would say, is through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. That Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And therefore, everyone needs Jesus. They need Jesus to rescue them. They need Jesus to, to fix them. So the question then is, well, well, why did God then give Israel the law? Well, Paul explains this. He explains that the law was actually a part of God's larger salvation plan. And Paul would say the law is actually good. However, the law is limited. The law can count sin, but the law cannot counter sin. And at the end of the day, ultimately, Jesus fulfilled the law through his death on the cross. And because of that, believers in Christ no longer, to live, no longer need to live under the law. But this still leaves a question unanswered. What happens then when you get rid of the law? I mean, won't we somehow become like Bear the Dog set loose from his constraints? I mean, running around, set free, killing wabbits, right? Urinating on park benches. Isn't the law needed in the life of a believer in order to ensure good behavior? Well, this actually brings us to verse 15 of today's text. So if you have a Bible handy, I hope you'll turn there to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be reading along there. And by the way, a huge Thanks to Ruhama Menti for reading the scripture this morning. Excellent job. I hope your final exams are going well for you. Uh, but let's look at verse 15. Here's what it says. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. So essentially, hey, if we get rid of the old rule book, does that mean, hey, we can just kind of do whatever we want? And Paul's answer is pretty definitive. It's a hard no negatory, not on your life. And why not? Well, Paul's answer is equally clear. His answer is this. It's because we're all slaves. You see, long before the law existed, we human beings had a problem, Paul would say, and that problem was sin. Paul's been talking about this all throughout the uh, book of Romans, right? So this shouldn't be a surprise to us if you've been tracking with us through the series. Uh, but Paul would say that sin is a powerful force that's at work within each and every one of us. It sabotages, sabotages our goals, it, it wrecks our relationships, it's behind every addiction, it's behind every selfish act, it sometimes causes us to do the wrong things for the, the right things for the wrong reasons. Paul would say, listen, we've got Adam's blood, Adam's DNA coursing through our veins, and so every single human being on the planet has this tendency to sin. We have this propensity to sin. Uh, we want to run away from God and run away to run towards our own selfishness. But Paul takes it one step further in today's text. He says, not only are we slaves, but we have the opportunity to choose a master. He says, you know what, in this life, you can, you can choose to be a slave to sin, or you can choose to be a slave to obedience. 
You can choose to be a slave to your selfish desires or to God's holy desires, to impurity and lawlessness or towards holiness and righteousness. And Paul would say, here's the thing. There is no middle ground on this. There is no neutral territory. There is no Switzerland. You're either a slave to one or you're a slave to the other. You know, when I think about this, it brings to mind the, the words of the ancient theologian Augustine of Hippo, or Augustine, if you're academically pretentious. Anyway, uh, fourth century, here's what he said. Thus, a good man, though a slave, is free, but a wicked man, though a king, is a slave, for he serves not one man alone, but what is worse, as many masters as he has vices. Paul and Augustine would agree, we are all slaves. And, and I realize, friends, listen, this is a provocative idea, uh, especially in our present day, because in our Western world in which we live, freedom is our greatest value. Freedom is our highest pursuit. I mean, we, we demand freedom, the freedom to self-author our future, to self-identify. We demand it to be self-fulfilled. So we don't want to be tied down by anything or anyone. We will not be bound by constraints in our Western world. But Paul says this. Paul says, hey, listen, nobody is free. In fact, absolute freedom is impossible autonomy, true autonomy, is really just a pipe dream. Because here's the thing, is we're all a slave to something or to someone. And the, the law, Paul would say, was actually powerless to do anything about this. Like I said, the law could count sin, but the law could not counter sin. It only revealed how powerful and pervasive the power of sin is in our lives, how deep our slavery runs. But the law could not change our nature any more than a wet paint, wet paint sign can keep you from touching a painted wall. Now, I realize that the idea of um, being a slave in our culture could seem like a little bit off-putting. But keep in mind that Paul is writing in a world where slavery was very common. I mean, a large percentage of the Roman population were slaves. Uh, even in the church that he was sending this letter to, most of them were either slaves or former slaves. So this was an idea that they, they really understood. And Paul even acknowledges the limitations of this idea, of this comparison. He actually writes in verse 19, if you notice, he says, Hey, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. So he's saying, you know what, I'm, I'm doing my best here to try and explain something to you that is very complex, that is very mysterious, and I'm trying to put it in a way that you're really going to understand it. We are all slaves. But he doesn't stop with this one idea. Paul agrees that we are all slaves to sin, but he also says that we don't have to stay there. And this is because we have new freedom in Christ. Say, Christ Jesus came so that we might be set free from this slavery to sin. There's a word for this. In the Bible, it's called redemption. The word redemption means to set somebody free at a price. And if you were a slave in Paul's day, there were two primary ways that you could escape slavery. On the one hand, you could die. On the other hand, somebody could purchase your freedom. Jesus provided both. He purchased our freedom through his death on the cross. He gave us redemption. He set us free. And when we put our faith in Christ, there's a supernatural event that takes place. We are united spiritually, supernaturally with Christ. We are literally in Christ Jesus. So that what became true of Jesus also becomes true of us. So we too, Jesus died on the cross. He rose again to new, to new life. We too die to our old self. We die to slavery to sin. And we are risen again to new life in Christ. 
You'll notice Paul talks about this. He talks about it in verse 22. Here's what he says. He says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. So when you receive Christ as Lord in your life, you are set free from sin. Your slavery becomes a thing of your past. You are no longer under the power of sin. You no longer need to obey it. You can walk away in freedom. And Paul would say that having been set free, you are now given a new master, a better master. A master who's not seeking to destroy you and bring death in your life, but a master who wants to give you life. The master who wants the best for you. We become slaves of God. And then we begin to do what our new master wants. See, when Christ sets you free, he sets you free from something, but he also sets you free for something. He sets you free from the power of sin, but he sets you free for service under God. See, this is the problem with our, with our culture's understanding of freedom. Our understanding of freedom culturally is often lopsided. We say that we want freedom, but really what we want is autonomy. You know that word autonomy, it, it literally means a law unto myself. It, it's made up of two words, autos and nomos. Autos means self, nomos means law, a law unto myself. Uh, and then, you know what, I've spoken about this before, but it is so important that it bears repeating because this idea is so pervasive in our culture and this idea of freedom is so wrong. Os Guinness wrote about this in a book. Uh, the book's called A Free People's Suicide. And he talks about these two types of freedom. He says on the one hand, there's negative freedom, but on the other hand, there is positive freedom. Negative freedom is freedom from. So it's this freedom from interference or constraint. This is what autonomy is, right? Don't hold me back. Don't tie me down because I'm free. I can do what I want, when I want, however I want it. It's negative freedom, freedom from. But positive freedom is freedom for. It's the freedom to become something. It's the freedom to aspire to something. The freedom for excellence. The freedom for the good. It's about where I'm going. It's about who I'm becoming. Positive freedom and negative freedom often go hand in hand. You actually need them both. So example, uh, for example, um, you can receive freedom from addiction, but you do that so you can have the freedom for a great career. You can have freedom from anger, but you do this so that you can have the freedom for a healthy relationship. These two freedoms often work hand in hand. But the spirit of autonomy that our culture so craves is actually rooted in the fall of humanity. You know, you might know the story, Genesis chapter 3, but Adam and Eve believed that if they ate the fruit, then they would become like God, that they would have the knowledge of good and evil. And they wanted this because they believed God was holding out on them. So they believed that they could strike out on their own. They could become their own masters. They were drunk on the dream of pure undiluted, 100-proof autonomy. But when they went looking for freedom, all they found was chains. You see, when you pursue autonomy, you never truly find freedom. You simply move deeper and deeper into your slavery to sin. True freedom always includes freedom for. It's about becoming who God created you to be. So freedom from sin, allows us to begin again with God, but it's for the chance 
to take up our mantle as his image bearers. So we are giving freedom for transformation. We are given freedom for righteousness. We're given freedom for holiness. That's what freedom is for. And Jesus came not just to give you freedom from, but he gave you freedom for. So, so what do we know about this new freedom? You know, I, I think it's important that we dig a little bit deeper into the text this morning. I mean, that's kind of like the umbrella understanding what Paul's talking about. But let's go just a little bit deeper this morning. And I'd, I'd like to expose us to uh, three aspects of this new freedom together. And here's the first one. This new freedom has a new framework. I mean, new freedoms inevitably come with new frameworks. Uh, let me give you an example. When you pass your driver's license, you have the freedom to drive. Do you remember the day when you got your driver's license? What new freedoms it created? I mean, you, you probably drove to school. Maybe you drove to the mall. Maybe you drove to a friend's house. Maybe you had the first road trip of your life without your parents around, okay? It is a great freedom. But here's the thing is this freedom also comes with new frameworks, so it doesn't mean you can drive as fast as you can. It doesn't mean that you can go off-roading on your neighbor's lawn, right? New freedoms always come with new frameworks. And our new freedom in Christ also has a new framework. It includes a new master. It includes a new outcome. And it also includes a new standard. Your new master is God, right? Under sin, you chase down your own desires, but under Christ, you pursue his desires, your new outcome is sanctification, Paul says. That's the end goal of this framework, actually. You, you see it in, in verses 21 and 22. Paul would say the fruit of sin is death, but the fruit of obedience is what? It's sanctification. No, that's, that's an interesting word. We might not know what that word means. The word sanctification essentially means to be made holy. So it means to be set apart, to be made pure um, as an instrument for God's sacred purposes. When you are sanctified, you become more and more like Jesus. The image of God begins to get restored in you so that you become more loving, you become more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more generous. That's what it means to be sanctified. So this new framework, it has a new master. It has a new outcome, but it also has a new standard. Let's look at verse 17. Paul says, you who were once slaves have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So even though you were no longer under the law, there is still a standard of teachings that we're committed to as believers in Christ. There's still a playbook from our head coach. And we find this in the teachings of Jesus. We find this in the New Testament. Hey, did you know Jesus actually cares about your sexuality? Did you know that Jesus cares about your finances and how you spend your money? He cares about your posture towards the poor and towards the marginalized. He has clear instructions on every aspect of our lives. So just because we are under grace doesn't mean that we jettison morality altogether. So it's not like in the Wild West where everybody has a gun and everybody's in charge of their own lives. That's not how it works. You know what, my friends in Bible college, they used to have a term for this. They would call it greasy grace. And this is really a misunderstanding, and it's a misapplication of God's grace. And this misunderstanding, it's tainted, it's slimy. It's a grace that allows you to slide into all sorts of bad behaviors. It allows you to slip into destructive patterns and, and broken relationships. But greasy grace forgets that Jesus gave everything to free us from the penalty of sin, but also to free us from the power of sin. 
greasy grace neglects the love that drove Jesus Christ to the cross, the pain that he endured, the sacrifice that he poured out. Greasy grace is a freeloader in the house of God. And it's not a true understanding of God's grace. So this new freedom has a new framework. But what else does it have? Well, it also has a new focus. And the new focus is your heart. Let's look at verse 17. It says, You who were once slaves have become obedient from the heart. See, this new freedom, it, it, it begins in the heart. Not your physical heart, right? But, but your, what we say, your ontological heart. Who you are at your core. Who you are on the inside. You see, your heart is the center of your being. This is actually how the Jews understood it. They understood that everything flows to the heart, everything flows from the heart. And God doesn't just want your habits, God wants your heart. And if God can get your heart, God will also get your habits. So God's not just into behavior modification, God's more into heart transformation. Because God always chooses to work from the inside out. I mean, this is actually why Jesus spent so much time talking about the heart in his teachings. I mean, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, you know what, you can draw near to God with your lips, but hey, what's the point if your heart is far from him? He would say that it's not enough to clean the outside of the dish, you actually have to clean the inside of the dish as well. And Paul in Romans, he actually identifies this as one of the problems with those who try to live under the law. They might follow the rules, but that doesn't mean necessarily that their hearts are into it. Because here's the thing, is the law doesn't fix bad hearts. The heart needs to be liberated. The heart needs to be transformed. And as it turns out, this, this heart transformation was God's plan all along. I mean, if you know the story of Israel, you know the story of Israel, you know that they failed to keep the law. I mean, they broke covenant with God time and time again. They turned to other gods. They trusted other nations instead of their God. Uh, they mistreated the poor. They abused the land. And this inevitably led them to the natural consequences for their failure. The kingdom was divided. The people of God went into exile. So what did God do? I mean, did he just double down and say, hey, I'm going to give you more laws? That seems like a very modern solution to changing people's lives. Let's just give them more laws, right? That's not what he did. Because what they ultimately needed was a change in heart. And so the Lord spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. And he talked about this future rescue plan where his people inevitably would receive a heart transplant. We hear about this story in Ezekiel chapter 11. Let me just look at it really quickly. Here's what the Lord speaks to his people through Ezekiel. He says, and I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. You know, it's, it's, I, I, I reflect on this, and I just think it's, it's mind-blowing to consider God's overall plan and how it spanned centuries and centuries. That God is like this master technician shifting and moving people and events to accomplish his overall plan of salvation. God's plan was to rescue humanity and ultimately restore creation. And here's the thing. At the center of this plan has always been the human heart. My heart. Your heart. The heart is the focus of God's transformation. And through Jesus Christ, he's giving us new hearts, soft hearts. 
warm hearts, hearts that can be shaped and molded and changed. Let me ask you today, what is the condition of your heart? Is it soft? Is it moldable? Is it hard or is it cold? What's the condition of your heart today? But of course, it doesn't end with the heart. Because like I said, when God has your heart, God will then have your habits. And this is, why, this is why Paul also says that we must present ourselves to God as obedient slaves. He says this in verse 16. And then in verse 19, he says, present your members, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to transformation. So transformation begins in the heart, but it extends to your digits. It goes from the top of your head to the tips of your toes. And that's how we are to present ourselves to God, our time, our treasure, our talent, everything. Yielded, available, and ready. That's how it works. Now, I thought about this, and so, so what if you actually did this? What if we actually did this as the people of God? Every single day. Like, what if we woke up in the morning, tomorrow morning, and we said this to God? God, today, I am your servant, and you are my master. And you can have every single part of my life, from the top of my head to the tips of my toes, my time, my treasure, my talent. You can have it all. Do with me as you will. Command me. How would that change the world? How would that transform you if we were just pure, obedient slaves to our master? Well, finally, this freedom has a fuel. Here's a question. Why should we trust God with our hearts? Why should we make God our master? And the answer to that question is grace and grace alone. You see, it is, as a believer in Christ, it is grace that fuels the movement of our hearts. Paul says in verse 15, he says, We are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. Well, what is grace? Well, grace essentially means God giving us what we don't deserve. It's about God's generosity towards humanity. Now, you're probably familiar with the idea of the carrot and the stick. You've maybe heard this before. That essentially there's two ways to motivate people. There's punishment and there's reward. And the carrot, it's a reward that you can kind of dangle in front of people, but a stick is punishment that comes up from behind, spurring people to do the right things. And, and life under the law can feel like reward and punishment because the fuel of the law is often fear. Fear of making mistakes, fear of never measuring up, fear of losing the carrot, or fear of facing the stick. But as followers of Jesus, we are not under law, we are under grace. And under grace, we need not fear the stick. Under grace, we need not fear losing the carrot. Because Jesus loved us so fiercely, Jesus loved us so purely, that he was willing to give his own life for us. Jesus, in fact, carried the stick on his back. Jesus was nailed to the stick on our behalf. And Paul actually ends this chapter, Romans 6, by saying that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This new freedom that Jesus offers us is a free gift. You cannot buy it. You cannot barter it. 
You cannot borrow it from a friend, borrow it, and you cannot beg for it. Paul says you simply have to receive it freely in surrendered faith. That's it. This is a, the fuel that constrains us to give him our hearts, to give him our all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Some of your translation says compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. The love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It constrains us to give him our hearts, to give him our all. This morning, how do you see God? Is God a hard master with a stick? Or is he loving, forgiving, and kind? I'm reminded of the words of one of the greatest preachers of all time, Dr. Charles Spurgeon. And this quote hits me between the eyes every time I read it. He says this, he says, When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Oh, friends, that we would understand the height and the depth and the width of God's grace for us. That our hearts would be melted and molded so that we would freely surrender ourselves to him completely. That we would give him our all. You know, I was, I was reflecting on all of this this past week, and, and it made me think of this, the disturbed life of a man who we all know named Michael Jackson. And, and you know who he is, you know, the king of pop, the gloved one, the moonwalker. He was a talented legend in his time. Michael's talent was the result of giftedness, but it was also the result of rigorous, rigorous hard work and practice. Michael grew up in a, in a small town called Gary, Indiana. His father, Joseph Jackson, was a crane operator. Uh, he was an amateur boxer. And he recognized the giftedness of Michael and his brothers at a very, very young age. And he became obsessed with their success. He believed that his children could become the greatest singing and dancing group of all time. And so they trained incessantly, relentlessly, and became eventually the Jackson Five. But the Jackson siblings will say that their father's Joseph's obsession with their success always teetered on abuse. Every day he'd come home from work, he'd rush home from work, he'd push all the furniture to the side, and he'd make his kids sing and dance and rehearse relentlessly for hours. And meanwhile, Joseph would sit on a chair in the corner with a, with a strap across his belt, threatening them to just make a mistake. If they misstepped or they misspoke, they would face the wrath of Joseph, which meant whippings, which meant verbal abuse. And this was Michael's childhood. Afraid to turn left when he should have turned right. Afraid to go forward when he should have gone back. So Michael's singing and his dancing were for forged in a world of fear. But here's the thing. Joseph Jackson may have got his son's feet, but he never got his son's heart. What did Joseph Jackson's obsession produce? Well, it definitely produced results. It produced one of the world's greatest entertainers. I mean, but here's the thing. is Where Joseph succeeded as a manager, he failed as a father. And eventually, he was later rejected by his children. Several of them accused him of abuse in later years. He got their feet, but he missed their hearts. 
And so in 2003, a journalist, Martin Bashir, he interviewed Michael Jackson at his Neverland Ranch. And, and this interview took place over several days and actually he had multiple interviews over several months. But it became eventually the controversial documentary known as Living with Michael Jackson. And maybe you have seen it. But there's a scene in the documentary where, where he's sitting with Michael in her, his home theater, watching a video of Michael singing and dancing as a kid, doing all of his dance steps, singing the songs that he was most famous for. And what's interesting is that in all of this time, Michael never referred to his father as dad or father, but he just referred to him as Joseph. And Bashir took notice of this, and so he decided, I'm going to probe a little bit deeper on this. And he asked Michael, he said, you know, I noticed for the last several days that I've been with you, you've never spoken of your father. And now, the only time that you've spoken of your father, you only refer to him as Joseph. Why is that? And here's how Michael responded. He says, you know, from the time I was a little kid, my heart always longed for dad, but all I ever got was Joseph. See, Joseph got his son's feet, but he never got his son's heart. You cannot win somebody's heart through fear, but you can win it through grace. And friends, our, our God of grace offers himself to us this morning as our loving master, and he wants our heart because he knows if he'll get your heart, he'll get your habits, and he will set our feet to dancing. And so as we go to prayer this morning, I, I simply want us to contemplate this one question. Will you give him your heart? Will you give him your all this morning? We're going to bow our heads, close our eyes, take a couple of minutes to just listen to God. And I want you to imagine if God was here this morning, what would he say to you? I do know this, he would ask you this. Will you give me your heart? Let's take a couple of minutes before our Father in quiet, contemplative prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your words that who the Son sets free is free indeed. And we no longer need to be slaves to fear because we are children of God. Lord, would you help us to, to do this, to live this out through your Holy Spirit's power, through grace. 
We offer ourselves to you. We give you our hearts. And Lord, we say, take all of us and use us as your holy instruments. Thank you for being so loving, so good, so kind. Thank you that you are for us. We bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.